So if you want to uh, get ready, we're, we're going to start our study of the Gospel of Mark today. So if you want and you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Mark uh, chapter 1. But in actual fact, what we're going to be doing today is that we're not actually going to dive into the first verse. You'll see what we're going to do in just a moment once I've got my notes. What we will do is we'll begin with prayer. Lord, as we come to your word today, we're minded that uh, your word is infallible, but, but we are not, and I am not. And so, Lord, I pray for your grace to be able to rightly put forward the word of God to your sheep today. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of what you're trying to say to your children. So I pray, Lord God, as I preach, let your word be magnified. Let your spirit be active in the hearts of your people today and in my heart also. And Lord, we pray that in this word we might grow in maturity as believers today. Lord God, we recognize that although from the moment of faith in Jesus Christ we are justified, we go through the whole, the rest of our lives growing in maturity and growing in gifts and growing in service and in fruit. And so, Lord, we pray as we expose ourselves to your word today that there would be an acceleration in growth and in maturity in Hope City Church today. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us, to all of you who are joining online, either by Facebook or by the Church Online page. We really appreciate you being with us today. Or for those of you catching up after the event of the service, we want to say a big hello to you. And uh, also for our little team here today, it's just so nice to be together in the building. And we really appreciate Dean's prayers earlier. We do want to continue to pray for our nation and for our city and, of course, for New Cross and all those involved on the front lines helping in the battle against the virus at the moment. Um, we want to get back together as a church in person as soon as we can. And so we want to continue in prayer, supporting the efforts um, of those fighting uh, against those, uh, well, fighting the illness. So we would appreciate you just continuing to stand with us in prayer for those things. So, today we are embarking on a brand new study. We're embarking on a brand new study of the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you've been with us for any time at all as Hope City Church, you'll know that we've been in the study of the book of First John for around about 20, 21 weeks now. So, Quite a long time we've been in First John, and uh, it's been a fantastic study. It's been incredible in its scope. Um, it has been intense at moments. Uh, we have chanced upon things in First John that maybe we, we hadn't even really considered before. And so what we felt to do was introduce another study to complement our study of First John, and also to run in tandem with it. So we're going to actually be running this study of Mark, not as a replacement to 1 John, but in tandem with 1 John. And I'm excited because we're going to be starting to study a gospel. This is something that's always such an exciting thing to do, is we're getting a, a window view into the life of our Lord Jesus Christ 
uh, we're getting as close as we possibly can, up close and personal with the Lord of glory and his walk while he was here on planet Earth. So it, there's, no, uh, there's no better thing to be doing on a Sunday than diving into one of the Gospels. So we're super excited to be doing that. Um, but this afternoon... What I think is needful is rather than jumping straight into the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, what we'll actually be doing is we'll be laying some foundations for our study of Mark's Gospel. We as a church are going to be getting acquainted with the historical context, the historical setting in which this book was written. We're going to have hopefully a bird's eye view look at the great themes and motifs of the whole of this second gospel. And I'll also be taking some time this afternoon to address some of the apologetic concerns. So apologetics is simply um, a reasoned defense. And uh, there certainly are some skeptics out there that have things to say about the gospel of Mark. Some skeptics will say, well, how do you know it was even written by Mark in the first place? Still further, some skeptics say the Gospel of Mark wasn't even written until hundreds of years after Jesus died. Still further, some skeptics might say uh, that the Gospels themselves, the four Gospels, were actually collated and brought together 325 years after the beginning of the first century by the Emperor Constantine. These are the sorts of objections that you'll face um, if you are friends with any non-Christian or any kind of um, person who might have objections to the gospel. So we want to address um, some of those objections and see what the truth really is. Well, you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, Graham, but we came to church. We didn't come to history class. <laughs> we didn't come to a school of apologetics. Why on earth would you bother teaching this kind of thing in a church service? Well, I think what we have to remember is that the Bible, more than being God's love letter to us, more than being a witness simply of how uh, we are to relate to God, uh, the Bible is also a collection of ancient historical documents. These documents, yes, are breathed out by God. We learn that in 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, theanastos, breathed out by God. However, those self-same God-breathed-out scriptures were also written by people. They were written by men who lived at particular points in history. So if we take no care to learn about who wrote the books and where they wrote the books and why indeed they wrote these books, um, then we risk making the following errors. We risk, number one, misunderstanding what these books are actually trying to say to us. We risk misunderstanding the Bible. We, we actually risk anachronistically, which means kind of out of time, reading our concerns, which we have here in the 21st century, reading them back into the scriptures, reading them back into authors that knew nothing of our 21st century concerns. Secondly, we risk doing this. We risk doing narcissus. Now, exegesis is when we go to the Bible and we study it and we say, we ask this question, what was the original intended meaning of this text? That's what exegesis is and that's what 
any theologian or pastor who stands in a pulpit every Sunday has to do in order to present God's word. We have to do exegesis. And indeed, actually, so does every Christian. All of us must practice this type of study when we're reading the Bible. Otherwise, we are prone to something called narcissism. Now, narcissism, of course, is being completely self-centered, self-obsessed. Everything is about me. And, and that, unfortunately, will also be our snare if we fail to do the proper studies into the background of these texts. We will end up thinking that everything in the Bible, it's about me. It's all about me, me, me. And the only real, real meaning that the Bible has is the meaning that I give it. And sadly, brothers and sisters, this has become rather endemic in the church today. We hear it all the time, and no doubt we've all been guilty of it too. We will open our Bibles, perhaps randomly, to any page we might feel led to open the Bible to, and we might say, well, God told me this verse means, or I believe this verse means, or I felt that God tell me this verse means, right? What does this verse mean to you? Now, that's a good question, but it's certainly not the question that we want to begin with if we want to really understand what the Lord is saying through the Scriptures. Otherwise, we'll begin to only be interested if we do this narcissism and we want to just read ourselves into the Scripture. What we end up doing by habit is that we're only interested in the passages of Scripture that confirm what we already want to believe. And we'll leave out the passages that tell us things that make us feel uncomfortable or tell us things that challenge our pre-existing beliefs. And this is why at Hope City Church, we, we try our best to practice what is called expositional preaching. So going verse by verse through the scriptures, believing that every single verse is the word of God. That enables us not to fall into the pitfall of only reading those passages that make us feel good about ourselves. The third risk of not doing the proper background reading or studies into the Bible is that we do as believers risk becoming bamboozled and confused by enemies of the Christian faith. Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar, very, very intelligent man, formerly a Christian, formerly at least a churchgoer. He went to Bible college. Now, however, he describes himself as an agnostic atheist, two phrases that I don't know how they go together, since one is a professed, I don't know, and the other one is a positive statement of there is no God. So that may have changed in recent years, but that's always been a confusing title to me. But Bart Ehrman says this, quote, the Bible is filled with discrepancies. Many of them are irreconcilable contradictions. Moses did not write the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write the Gospels. That's Bart Ehrman. Now, most Christians, most Christians who have been through a seminary education, sadly, would not have a ready answer for Mr. Ehrman. And to be honest, 
when we send off our children and our young people into the world of education, they are likely to meet with that kind of a scepticism. And we want to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, give our kids and young people the best possible chance when they go out and begin to sail the waves of culture. So we want to be able to provide a ready defense to that kind of skepticism. And that's why doing the background work into these passages of Scripture, into these books, especially the Gospels, is really, really important. So in view of what Ehrman has to say, are we right to think that it was actually even Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark? Well, rest assured, yes, we are. Yes, we are. We are correct in thinking that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. But it always helps to know why we believe that, doesn't it? Rather than just being able to say, well, it's just always what I've been taught. So it's good for us as Christians to know at least as much about how the Bible came to be as the average skeptic who wants to tell us that it's a load of rubbish. For example, I don't know if you're aware, but the end of Mark's gospel, the final chapter, you'll find this in the footnotes, but the earliest manuscripts of the book of Mark don't actually contain the final verses. Verses 9 to 20 of the final chapter of Mark actually don't appear in the earliest manuscripts. So people believe these verses were added sometime later on. And you'll find that in the footnotes in the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark. But if we know that as Christians, then we don't face being bamboozled and kind of shocked when people bring that sort of stuff up. So, who wrote Mark? Who wrote it? Who wrote this Gospel? As I said, I've heard it said before, certainly during my time at university, that the Gospels weren't written until... 200, maybe even 250 years after the death of Jesus. And they were written by people who hadn't actually been around to witness Jesus' life. While I was at university, gosh, it's going back quite a way now. Um, It's a scary amount of time since I was at university. But um, I remember around that time was the dawn of YouTube. YouTube had just become a thing. And one of the most popular videos on YouTube at the time was something called the Zeitgeist Movie. I don't know if you ever watched that. But this was literally like, it was like catnip for conspiracy theories, it, it, conspiracy theorists. It was, they just loved it because what it aimed to do was debunk Christianity. It aimed to debunk Christianity um, to say that, you know, Christianity is effectively a hoax. It was something that was invented by the Roman Empire Uh, to try and control the masses, to replace polytheism, which just wasn't working out. And Christianity just kind of stole bits and bobs from lots of other pagan religions, and Jesus is just a copy of Osiris, you know, the pagan god. And they just cobbled it all together, and they made this thing called the Bible, and the Emperor Constantine signed off on it in 325 AD at the the Council of Nicaea. And there you go, bam, you've got a religion, and that's how you're going to control people. That's what Zeitgeist said. And at the same time, it just so happened that Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, had been released. And this was big talk back in the early 2000s 
And I remember coming back from nights out as a freshman and sitting across the table with somebody half cut trying to explain um, how the Gospels were legit and they weren't just kind of written by a bunch of people 250 years after Jesus died um, and that the the church um, hadn't just cobbled these things together. You know, it was intense and I was under-equipped to handle this kind of level of skepticism. So... These theories propagated by your zeitgeist movies, by your Dan Browns, by your Richard Dawkinses, your Ricky Gervaises, and you, whoever else is in that kind of realm uh, of pop atheism, the, these, these theories, they sound pretty appealing to people who hate the Bible, don't they? They sound rather appealing because they confirm certain things that they want to believe, but are they actually grounded in any truth? Is there any evidence to suggest that the Gospels were written later, uh, that the Emperor Constantine signed off on them at the Council of Nicaea? Well, no, there isn't. There's no truth or evidence to suggest that that is the case. Um, in reality, the books of the New Testament, they're not the works of Constantine uh, and his bishops. The Council of Nicaea actually had nothing to do with codifying scripture. Uh, the Council of Nicaea was actually about refuting heresies that were getting around the church, uh, like Arianism, that Jesus was, you know, he, he was a, a man, but he wasn't God, and things like that. Uh, Council of Nicaea was not about, let's put the Bible together right now. What book have you got? What book have you got? Okay, let's rubber stamp it. That, that didn't happen. Um, the New Testament documents actually were already in circulation around the whole of the Roman Empire by 325 AD. In fact, the Gospels were in circulation in the latter half of the first century AD, no less than 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. These documents were circulating all around the Roman Empire. And there actually isn't a scholar in a relevant field today who's teaching who would deny this. It's not a subject for debate. Uh, it is generally accepted that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are first century Greek documents and they were in circulation around the ancient world in that time. In fact, a bit of information from my apologetics course, there isn't an ancient text that even comes close to the New Testament writings in terms of the amount of manuscripts that we have for them. So, there are roughly 25,000 ancient manuscript fragments of the New Testament. And when you compare that to the nearest competitor, which is Homer's Iliad, there are only 643 extant copies of Homer's Iliad. But there are 25,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. It, it, it's incredible uh, how many copies there were. So remember also, there's no printing press back then. So those 25,000 copies were literally by hand, painstakingly copied and then distributed all around the ancient world. And when you compare and contrast the writings of the New Testament in those ancient manuscripts, each copy is remarkably, remarkably similar. And so when the skeptics will say, oh, well, you know, there's, ton there's, there's thousands of differences across the manuscripts, you know, this version of Mark might say this and that version of Mark might say that. There's actually an incorrect way to frame that. There are discrepancies and differences in the different manuscripts, but do you know what the vast majority of those differences are? Slips of the pen, 
spelling differences, grammatical differences in the, in the Greek. And that's been proved. There's a great scholar called um, Craig Blomberg who wrote The Reliability of the New Testament. Fantastic book. And the New Testament really is unrivaled in terms of its reliability as an ancient document. So there's no evidence really to support that the Gospels were late written. Uh, most scholars have Mark actually as being the earliest Gospel, the very earliest Gospel. Even though it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, scholars actually believe Mark was written before Matthew sometime between 60 AD and 68 AD. So that's like 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, there's a bunch of people that come pretty quickly in the church after the apostles die. And they're called the early church fathers. You've got people like Irenaeus, Origen, um, Ignatius, Clement of Rome. And these guys were prolific writers they wrote tons of material and it's from their testimony that we find out who wrote mark and how so i'm just going to quote to you from a few of the uh, church fathers because it's super interesting these quotes are just it's mad to be reading this isn't it and think this was written 2000 years ago and we're we're reading it today so we're doing some ancient history that papius who was one of the church fathers who lived between 60 and 130 AD, so early on, would have likely known the apostles. He said this, and the elder, we don't know necessarily who the elder is, but he says, the elder used to say this, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things said and done by the Lord. For he had not heard the Lord, nor had followed him, but later on followed Peter who used to give teaching as necessity, demanded but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard, and to make no false statements in them. So from that we learn that Mark is what? Mark's doing what? He's following Peter round. He's following Peter round, and Peter is preaching. And Mark is his interpreter, and he begins to write down these things that he's hearing. And um, we find that, let me find this quote here. Yeah, Eusebius, another church father, tells us about the where, the where of this gospel. He says this, the gospel according to Mark had this occasion. As Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had followed him for a long time and remembered his sayings, should write them out. And having composed the gospel, he gave it to those who had requested it. When Peter learned of this, he neither directly forbade nor encouraged it. So what we have here is the idea that, that Mark is Peter's interpreter. He's following Peter around. He's listening to what he's preaching. And the people who are in Rome are saying, please write these things down so that we can have it if ever you leave. And he writes them down. And it seems to us, at least from Eusebius, that he's written these things down before Peter dies. So that gives us a date of roughly between 60 and 68 A.D., because we know that Peter was martyred. At least tradition tells us Peter was martyred uh, either in the year 64 
or up as late as 67 AD, but most believe it was 64 AD. So this is this basically means that the uh, the Gospel of Mark is is an early proof of the life of Jesus. Uh, we know that Matthew uh, and Luke and John follow shortly after John being the latest in around 90 AD. Those later Gospels that you read about in the Da Vinci Code, like the Gospel of Thomas and Peter, those don't come along until the back end of the second century AD. So they're much later. And when you read them, you can tell that they're quite embellished. They're very colorful depictions of the story of Jesus. And they weren't taken as being authoritative, authentic Gospels by the early church fathers. So who was it written to? Who was this gospel written to? Well, we've already heard it was written in Rome, and it's the eyewitness testimony of Peter. It's the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So that makes Mark the same as the other three gospels, in that all four are eyewitness testimonies. Now that is as good as it gets in the ancient world. That's the nearest proof as you can possibly get to anything in terms of the ancient world, you know? Because we didn't have videos back then, there's no YouTube or TikTok for people to kind of upload things onto. We're dependent really on eyewitness testimony. So the Gospels are all eyewitness testimony to the life of Jesus. So when we're studying any Gospel, when we're studying the Gospel of Mark, we're literally getting up as close as we possibly can to the life of our Lord. Like there is no closer engagement with Jesus than with the Gospels. And we know that Peter was martyred in Rome. In in fact, we know that this happened under the reign of Nero. I don't know how many of you have heard of the Emperor Emperor Nero, um, but Nero uh, was quite a character, to say the least. Um, Nero started off his reign in the late 50s AD. And at first, he actually started out all right. He had some decent counselors around him. There was a guy called Seneca who was a very wise philosopher who kind of fathered Nero and um, helped Nero to reign in, in those early years along with his mother. But things started to go a bit pear-shaped around about 60 AD and Nero fell in love with this slave girl and he wanted to ditch his wife for this slave girl and it just got really messy from there on in. He began to have affairs with anything that moved And um, it it ends up really with um, everyone kind of being a bit afraid of Nero. And in the the year AD 64, there's this huge fire that breaks out in Rome. And it breaks out across a huge area of the city where there are lots of people living. Like Rome was a huge, huge city, even in those days. And some of these buildings were like four stories high you know, in the ancient world, and this they were wooden, and the fire just burnt through the lot. So you can imagine the devastation and the death. Nero was away at the time. Uh, he was on his holidays. And historians say that when he came back to Rome, he came back immediately as soon as he heard of the fire, but they say that when he came back, he was kind of chill about the whole thing, and he, he was actually sat up on top of a hill playing a, playing a guitar, effectively, just mucking about, drinking with his friends. And then immediately after the fire ends, he produces plans for his palaces uh, that are going to occupy this part of Rome that had burnt down. There's even 
news that breaks out that he's going to call this new city. He's going to change the name from Rome to, to Neropolis. And so there's rumors start to break out that actually it was Nero that started the fire. It was Nero that started the fire. And so it began to put his rule in threat. And the tide of public opinion began to turn against him. So what does Nero do? Well, he's got to get the blame off him, hasn't he? He's not going to take the fall for this. Somebody's going to get, somebody's going to get it. Heads are going to roll. And um, we find out what Nero did through the account of a historian called Tacitus. Now, this is, uh, Tacitus, we know, was a young boy at the time. He was living in Rome during the fire and during these times. And so let's read what he has to say. Quote, Therefore, to stop the rumor that he'd set Rome on fire, Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their enormities. I'm not sure what that, that means, but they had enormities. Um, <laughs> Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out yet again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all quarters as to common receptacle, and where they are encouraged. Accordingly, first those were arrested who confessed they were Christians. Next, upon their testimony, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city, but as of hating the human race. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death or torn to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses, set fire to, and when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. Nero offered his own garden players for the spectacle, and exhibited a Cyrensian game, indiscriminately mingling the common people in the dress of a charioteer, a charioteer or else standing in his chariot. For this cause, a feeling of compassion arose towards the sufferers. Though guilty and deserving of exemplary capital punishment, because they seemed not to be cut off for the public good, but were victims of the ferocity of one man. Nero was a ferocious, ferocious man. And most today would identify Nero as a sadist. So he literally used Christians as garden candles. And they went through all sorts of torture in this first great persecution. So when Mark's gospel is written and distributed, it's written and distributed to Roman Christians who were under some of the darkest and most oppressive times in all of Christian history. We have to remember that. These people who are reading the, the gospel of Mark at the first were people who would have known friends and family who had been literally fed to wild animals in public. Uh, they would have perhaps had family members who were taken from them in the night, nailed to crosses. Um, some of them would have had burning oil uh, poured over their bodies and their flesh would have been stripped. Um, the, these times for us now are almost unfathomable. Um, but this is the world into which Mark's gospel first arrives. And these are the types of Christians who read it at first and were encouraged by it. So perhaps this can explain to us why 
A third of Mark's gospel is given over entirely to the passion narrative. In fact, the passion narrative being the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And it's actually Mark's version of that. It's Mark's passion narrative that's used by Matthew and Luke. And when we think that Mark's gospel is quite short, but a huge amount of it is given over to the narrative of Jesus' suffering, we can see perhaps what might be happening here. We can see perhaps what kind of comfort this might have brought to people who were at fear of death all the time. See, the, the first half of Mark's gospel follows Jesus around. It follows Jesus around on his journeys around the country of Galilee, which is to the north. If you look at a map of Israel, uh, you'll see that in the north of the country, you've got a hilly area. You've got the Sea of Galilee surrounded by hills. And it was around those towns. Essentially, Jesus crisscrossed around the Sea of Galilee in the first half of the book of Mark, going from town to town. And these settlements were a mix of different cultural towns. You've got Jewish settlements, and then you've got settlements that are more Greek and influenced by Greek culture. And so we, we follow Jesus on his journey around this Sea of Galilee at the start of Mark. And then halfway through, we follow Jesus on his final journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. So as we read the Gospel of Mark, and as we do read it in the coming months, we're literally journeying with Jesus. We're journeying with Jesus. But it's this final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem that really does occupy the thinking of Mark. And um, Jesus is known to be portrayed by Mark as the suffering servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Let's just read that for a moment. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53 gives us a rather sobering picture of the Messiah. A man of grief, a man of sorrows, despised, rejected, smitten, afflicted. All these words concerning the Lord of glory. Now the strong focus on the suffering of Jesus for our sake is an encouragement. Not just to those first century believers. And it really would have been an encouragement for them to know that their own Lord and Saviour stood under suffering just like them but it's an encouragement for us today too to know that we're not alone we're not alone do you know guys I'll be honest in my seasons of relative suffering because it isn't nothing like what these early Christians walked through but 
in my own relative sufferings, do you know what one of the worst parts of suffering is? It's that feeling of isolation. It's that feeling of you're alone. Nobody is going through what you're going through. Nobody understands what you're in. Nobody can help you. You are alone. Isn't that one of the worst things about suffering? Is the loneliness of suffering. What Mark's gospel tells us is that we don't have to go to Google <laughs> and say, is anyone else suffering with this? We know that Jesus has suffered with us. That might sound at first mention a glib thing to say. But when we have our heads immersed in scripture and we see that Jesus, the Lord of glory, who has from eternity past enjoyed the praise and worship of all those heavenly beings, stepped down into this mess and subjected himself to be crucified, mocked, spit upon, denied, to have his beard plucked out by people who he created and gave breath to. When we see that, we know that Jesus identifies with us, perhaps more so than anywhere else, in our places of suffering, in our places of abandonment, in our places of helplessness and loneliness. You see, there was no court to which these early Christians could appeal to. They were alone. They had their backs to the wall. You know, the very idea of this health and wealth gospel that is so popular and prevalent in the world today would have been laughable to those first century Christians. One thing that the New Testament promises is that we will suffer. Is that we will experience pain. And that we as a body of Christ, to one degree or another, will suffer persecution. Our comfort in this is knowing that our Lord endured more than any other individual has ever endured. And that's our strength. And I think we can lean into that today in our current set of circumstances where there is so much suffering in the world today. And there is suffering here in the UK. There is suffering in the body of Christ. I'm sure there is suffering in your life that I don't know about. But we know that our Lord is able to comfort us through the Holy Spirit. He's able to make us know that we're not alone, that we haven't been truly abandoned in our suffering and in our pain. To finish with, I just want to say this. Jesus is the subject from verse 1 to the final verse of chapter 16 in this gospel. The crosshairs of focus actually has never come off Jesus. He's always the one that the camera's following the whole way through the Gospel of Mark. It's almost obsessive. It's almost like Mark wants us to know, this is the guy. This is the guy. This is the most important set of events that has ever taken place on this planet and ever will take place on this planet. Jesus is the subject, the content, the all of Scripture. I want for us to recognize in our lives today that same 
obsession with following Jesus that Mark had. Never to let the Lord out of the crosshairs of our focus. Always to follow him. Always to know that where he leads is where we go. Even if it leads to suffering. Even if it leads to pain. Even if it leads to rejection. That our call as Christians is just simply to follow the Lord. Simply to follow Jesus wherever he may be leading us. And to know that when we do suffer for his name that he is with us. He has not forsaken us. He will not abandon us. He will not leave us alone. Jesus is the answer in our suffering. He is the answer to our sins. And he is the answer to our every need. Let's just pray. Lord, we want to thank you today that you have preserved for us in the Gospel of Mark your works, your life, your death, and your rising again. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit you preserved all of this for us and that today we can get up close and personal with you when we read the Gospel of Mark. Lord, we pray that today, for any of us who here today are suffering, anybody who might be watching in on the stream, who's experiencing pain, separation, loneliness, and anxiety, we pray that we might remember that the Lord too, when he was here, suffered those same things. And that he promises us, no matter what, he will not abandon us, he will not leave us, he will not let us be cut off forever but he is our comforter. And so, Lord, as we lift up this, this uh, final song of praise to you, I pray, Lord God, that you would draw our hearts to focus on you. I pray that we would put Jesus in the crosshairs of our focus. I pray for you Whatever comes your way, whatever temptation, whatever pain, whatever suffering that you might be enduring. And this temptation to pull your eyes off the Lord and to begin to focus on yourself. Don't let it happen. Lord, we pray for strength to keep our eyes on Jesus. And Lord, if there are any today that for the first time are recognizing their need of the Lord Jesus, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would bring conviction. You would give grace for repentance. And you would pull them into your kingdom and into your loving embrace. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.